0: Before we um, before I offer the talk, I want to just make one quick announcement. That there's some people here that have um, a lot of sensitivity towards any sense um, lotions, shampoos, um, perfumes, aftershave, and if you could kindly be mindful of um, of not having any strong scented products on you, that would be very very helpful. Some of us may have um, a lot of reactions to these, so I appreciate if you could um, be conscientious of that. Okay. There is unscented products in the manager's office, so you can go there and get them if you don't have them. So thank you. So I I think tonight. Um, I'd like to begin with a reading from Hafiz, who's a Persian poet. It's called For Three Days. So not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone, oh, for three days or a couple days in your closet. That would really do it. And that means not leaving. And you better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches, and you better get yourself a chamber pot. No reading, uh-uh, no writing. That would be cheating. Let's aim for the high 360 degree detox. However, the sitting alone is not recommended if you're normally sedated. Dear one, don't let hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried in here. So dear one, don't let hafiz fool you. There's a ruby buried in here. Speaking about the ruby, of course, in each of our own hearts. And from the Buddhist way, we could say the, the Buddha nature within all of us. So I want to congratulate you. you made it day number two. Mary Grace, I think, mentioned earlier um, popular expression is the, the first couple days, whether this is your first treat or your 50th, is that um, going into the swamp. And um, we may have not realized just how wild our mind can be at times until we stop and become present and take away a lot of the distractions. Bhanti Gunaratana, Buddhist monk, he writes this from his book, um, Mindfulness in Plain English. He says, somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. <laughs> that your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. No problem, he says. He says, You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way, but you just never noticed. Not a problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. So I really want to spend a little bit of time now, just to really help uh, to normalize uh, so many of our experiences. And I had some group interviews today, and you know, hearing about the challenges, and you know, it's a very different way of life when we enter into retreat. Very different than our world, regular world. So I want to normalize the challenges that many of us are experiencing. Bandi Gunaratana, he has another word that he speaks about with meditation. I kind of like this word. He says, it takes gumption to meditate. John kabat says says, meditation is not for the faint of heart. It's, it's something to sit with ourselves and bear witness to what's going on in our own body and mind. What we are undertaking here is of in my opinion, some of the the most noblest of works, this work on ourselves. On the other side, we could say there's nothing more difficult. We also could say there's nothing more rewarding. And also we could say, what else is there to do anyways? that during the day we've been lost at times in fantasizing what we'd perhaps rather be doing, maybe having a cappuccino or seeing a movie, play checkers, anything but being here. You may even contemplate it, I wonder if anyone ever has really died of boredom in a meditation retreat or restlessness. Yet here we are, we've come to this retreat, we've reckoned within our lives that perhaps there's more to life. Not that it isn't bad sitting and having cappuccino and watching a movie and all the things that we do, but something was calling to you about our lives that brought us here to this retreat. It was very powerful for Mary Grace reminding us last night of um, it's not all going to last. It's not all going to last. And I remember once speaking with my old teacher. who was a Burmese forest monk. His name was Maim Seto on his 80th birthday. and I remember asking him, how, how fast was uh, 80 years? And he went like this. <laughs> 80 years. Snap of a finger. So here we are, Spirit Rock. Beautiful place. Pastoral views but is it a pastoral view inside our mind and our body? During the 1980s, I had the opportunity to live in a Burmese Theravadan forest monastery for eight and a half years as a layperson and caring for the monks and doing a lot of practice. At one point, while I was there, I realized that, um, yes, it's very peaceful, these redwood forests, this was in the Santa Cruz mountain area, also spent time in Burma, Beautiful, remote, quiet places. But I began to realize that inside was another story. And an ex monk friend of mine, we actually called it the monastery, another name for it was called the shit accelerator. In the sense that everything is coming up in spades. And so, yes, it's peaceful here, pastoral. But on the inside, it may not be so pastoral. And I just want to acknowledge that that for any of us that are having challenges, that this is normal when we embark on retreat practice. So we're in the cook pot and we're getting cooked. It's important to know that in this path of awakening, there will be challenges along the way whether again, as I mentioned earlier, whether it's our first or a 50th retreat. And actually, in Buddhist psychology, in the teaching manuals of meditation, they actually speak about the challenges that come up when you do meditate. And I actually find that very comforting, very comforting that it's predictable, that if you meditate, things will happen that will be challenging. So if you're thinking you're the only one that's feeling restless or sleepy or filled with doubt, welcome to the club. So classically the Dharma speaks about five types of hindrances that can arise when we practice. One is sense desire, The second is aversion or anger, the third is restlessness, the fourth is sleepiness or this old archaic English words that I like sloth and torpor, and the fifth is doubt. And they speak about these hindrances as impediments to our progress in meditation. Some ways we can say that they feed from a psychological point of view our neurotic and narcissistic tendencies that fuel our grasping, our aversion, our ignorance, our unawareness. Sometimes we might feel we're being consumed by one of these hindrances. Sometimes it might be more than one. I like to call this an MHA, a multiple hindrance attack very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable to be filled with sense, desire, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt all at the same time. (laughs) The Dharma speaks of a simile of the pond and that the pond um, often has very clear water, but when you're filled with sense, desire, that water becomes colored with all these colored, beautiful dyes so you can't see through. If you're having a lot of aversion and anger the water's like boiling and so you can't see through. If you're feeling very restless it's like strong winds that are choppy the water so you can't see through the water. I love this one if you have a lot of sleepiness sloth and torpor the ponds is just covered with thick algae. And the last is doubt, which is also pretty good. It's when the mud is all getting stirred up in the bottom and everything's just all kind of not seen clearly. The root causes of all of these types of challenges are based in our grasping, in our aversion, in our unawareness. Said in the Dharma that there's no fire hotter than grasping and no ice colder than hatred and no fog thicker than not seeing clearly, or ignorance, or unawareness. My teacher, Thompullo he said that midnight is dark, the new moon is dark, the thickness of the forest is dark, but darkest of all is unawareness. Darkest of all is unawareness, not seeing clearly, So I'd like to just take a brief closer look at some of these hindrances and so the first one is sense desire and it probably can be summed up in three or four words. I want it now. I want it and I'm gonna dream about it. I'm gonna fantasize on it. I'm gonna love it. I want it. The thing is if those of you that ever fed a wild cat or raccoon They come back again and again and again. So we start feeding these, they'll return. So we're talking about a type of a grasping, sense desire that's intoxicating, it's compelling. So its opposite can be summed up in three or four words. I don't want it. Anger, aversion, I don't like it, I hate it. I'm stuck. Sometimes our mind is just filled with not wanting it to be the way that it is. Has anybody had any anger aversion or any grasping come up in the last couple of days? Yeah Yeah. just want to normalize it. It's normal. We're human beings. We're meditating. We're beginning to take a closer look at the workings of our own mind and our own body, our own hearts. Restlessness, ants in the pants, pacing tiger. I just recently taught in Germany and they have an expression for restlessness. We say ants in the pants, they say bees in the butt. That was an expression I hadn't heard before. Crawling out of my skin. Yeah, maybe we do wonder, will I die of restlessness or boredom right here? Lots of energy with restlessness, but it's not harnessed. It's unwieldy sloth and torpor. Mary Grace spoke about that this morning. And, you know, from our point of view, this sleepiness can come up for a few different reasons. And one is, hello, you're tired. And many of us don't even realize how exhausted we are until we stop. Sometimes we've lost so much uh, disconnection from our own bodies, our own biorhythms, our own circadian rhythms that... We don't even know and, and sometimes of course during our day-to-day lives we can't even afford the, to stop to take a rest in the afternoon because I to go pick up the kids, I gotta do the laundry, I gotta go back to work, I gotta do an errand. So sometimes when we begin to meditate um, the body begins to reveal itself and reveals just how exhausted that we are. Now I'll never do this but I have had a fantasy <laughs> Of um, Like on a meditation retreat, like a week-long one, is maybe put out beds in the meditation hall for the first three days and have people just sleep. And then at the end of the three days, okay, let's wake up and we can be here. Now, sometimes we also fall asleep because we don't want to feel. We don't want to be in touch with what's here remember some years ago um, a woman was taking one of my mindfulness classes and she was extremely overweight and um, when she did the meditation which was we were doing what was called the body scan as soon as she it began with the left foot and she said as soon as I got to my left foot I was out I was gone this happened for weeks on end and finally After about five or six weeks, she came to class and she said, I finally listened to the body scan. And I said, well, what happened? She goes, well, it's a very painful, very powerful story, but she said that um, she was at the gym earlier in the week, and she was in a woman's gym, and she was pounding weights. And she began to look around the room and saw that she was lifting bigger weights than anyone in the gym. And a moment arose that she felt powerful, she felt powerful, beautiful. And then it got her in touch with, as she shared with us in the class, all this profound shame that she had about herself and her body. And so as soon as I got to my toe, I'm out of here. I am going somewhere else. So it's a very beautiful healing, getting in touch with that beauty that is also within us. But there's times where we go to sleep because we just don't want to feel it. Don't want to be there. So I think it's very helpful to If that's coming up in our day to day practice, to, okay, am I really tired or is it something I'm not really wanting to be present to? To to be willing to uh, reflect on that, to be open to that. And of course, um, you know, just not living a balanced life can really, you know, contribute to our tiredness. So the last uh, hindrance is doubt. And this can come up big time for us. Like, will this meditation really help me? I'm not getting anything, I'm not going anywhere, I'm not getting something. Anybody have doubt? Yeah, yeah. This is I want to just normalize it as it normal. This thing about not getting anywhere, but it's actually a very interesting play of words that I'll say to you that um, in Greek the word utopia. Which we hear this word utopia, we want to get to utopia where it's perfect. But in Greek, it actually means nowhere. But if you change the words n o w w h e r e to n o to it's, if we can change this the shifting of the words, and it all of a sudden spells now here. So maybe within utopia, that it's pointing to something now here. So very briefly how to work with these hindrances and I would say that perhaps the most powerful antidote is mindfulness itself. Once we become aware that for example we're holding the steering wheel so tightly that our knuckles are turning right, once we become aware we have choice and we can begin to respond in a way that is much more constructive. Awareness helps sets us free. Awareness gives us choice. Awareness helps us to recognize where it is that we are. Oh. I've been lost in doubt. Oh, I've been lost in this dream of fantasy of wanting. Oh, I've been lost in this not wanting. And actually, when we become mindful, that mindfulness is a factor of awakening. It begins to shift because with that awakening of mindfulness, then we begin to get interested. We want to investigate it. That investigation can lead to deeper understanding. So a powerful antidote is awareness itself. Once we recognize that we are stuck, we can begin to get unstuck. Classically too, sometimes the Dharma speaks about when we're consumed with a lot of grasping and sense of desire, we may also find it useful to meditate on impermanence, on change. Nothing stays the same. If we're filled with a lot of aversion, anger, the practices of loving-kindness. Mary Grace offers such a beautiful loving-kindness meditation this afternoon. Cultivating loving-kindness, perhaps reflecting on the pains of harboring resentment, anger, grudges, aversion. Also the practices of generosity can help to bring down the fires of aversion. Restlessness, sometimes we want to work on harnessing this energy that has been unharnessed, that is wildy. perhaps focusing it on a very brisk walk, doing something very one-pointed can be helpful. And for me, with doubts, I find one of the most helpful things is the reflection of these three refuges. And we began with those on the very first evening, the refuges of awakening, of the Buddha, Refuges of the teachings, the Dharma, the way, the practices to awakening and the reflection on the Sangha, the noble community. We are part of that lineage of those that have come even before us that are dedicated to awakening and we are connected to them. Developing some sense of inspiration, confidence in this practice that has touched your heart. I'd like to mention one more challenge. It's not in the hindrance list, but it clearly is a challenge for many of us. And that is wandering mind. Has anybody's mind been wandering? Yeah, that's kind of a silly question to ask. And the good news is, now that you're mindful, you know that it's wandering. If you were not mindful, you wouldn't even know that. So wandering mind is something that uh, is very common for for all of us. And I want to mention maybe three ways that are helpful to work with it. And one is maybe, first of all, of of an understanding that it is a, a, a practice. And, you know, it took a lot of practice for us as babies and infants to get up onto our feet and we've become bipeds instead of being on all fours. It took practice. When you go to the gym and you have weights and you're working the weights through that repetition, that builds muscle mass. The mind goes off, you bring it back. The mind goes off, you bring it back. That type of repetition brings the muscle mass of more steadying the mind, the heart, of building concentration. So There's a saying from a teacher, like I mentioned it earlier, that even if your mind wanders off every other moment, bring it back quite gently and if you did nothing for the whole of your hour but bring it back every time it went off, which seemed like every other moment, your hour would still be well employed. It's a very loving way of holding the practice. Even if it went off every other moment, you're bringing it back. That type of training, that type of repetition Is helping to support the concentration, the steadiness of the mind. It's like priming a pump. Now another potential revealing aspect of the wandering mind is if you recognize and see it enough going off and see where it went to and it's going off into some deeply unfinished business that really does need attention, that's actually good information. Maybe that not maybe during this retreat you have to go and make that phone call, but like wow, I'd never realized just how upset I've been with this situation, and so it's beginning to reveal to you perhaps what's been going on underneath the hood that we haven't had a lot of awareness about. And thirdly, I think this practice of coming back into the present moment can be very revealing in the connection between our thoughts and emotions in our body. Let's say I've been wandering off somewhere and all of a sudden I realize I've been off and I come back and all of a sudden I notice my jaw is like a vice grip, my belly is in knots, my shoulders are up higher my ears. I mean, this is when I'm meditating like this. And um, so it, it is beginning to reveal to us how these various experiences in our lives, our thoughts and emotions affect our body. This is also important information. So I'd like to just um, suggest working with the practice cultivating our patience. My teacher, Temple Luceto used to always say, patience is the way to freedom. And I used to think inside me, I never said it out loud to him, how the heck do you get patient? But then I began to sit with impatience and kind of studying it, cooking in it. And I began to realize that my Ability to be able to sit and acknowledge and open and be with my impatience was actually building my patience. It was a powerful teaching for me. So I want to invite you to be patient with your practice, but not only be patient, may it be a practice that you can bring some sense of compassion. This a teacher from Australia, a meditation teacher, he says don't let meditation be another act of self-improvement that wraps your life in a knot. Or he calls it the subtle aggression of self-improvement, how we can keep on putting ourselves in very difficult places. There is an importance towards wise effort that's not to negate the importance of making effort in our practice. And at the same time, let us be wise and not be very hard on ourselves. Let us train with kindness as I was sharing with you about the dog. You know, you train a dog with kindness, it'll roll over and sit up too. You don't have to beat it. So, I think that's enough of working with these challenges and want to move into talking about the body. So in the first foundation of mindfulness there's actually six distinct practices and we've been actually working with the first three. First is the mindfulness of breathing, second mindfulness of postures, third bringing mindfulness into our activities, bending and moving, eating and so forth. There's three other practices that are taught in The first foundation of mindfulness. So the fourth one is the 32 parts of the body meditation and fifth one is a meditation on four primary elements solidity, liquidity, motion, and temperature. And the fifth is a contemplation on death. It's actually quite a a graphic um, contemplation of, of decomposition from a body that is freshly dyed until it turns into dust. Tonight, I want to speak about, for the next few days, we'll be practicing the 32 parts of the body meditation. And perhaps later in the week, we may touch lightly upon the elements. So you'll have some experience with those. And actually, I feel like we got some of the meditation instructions on the mindfulness of death last night in the talk. This fragile, precious world that we live in. I didn't realize as I was walking outside here tonight first time seeing it, I came to this bench. They're like, huh, this this bench hasn't been here before, and walked to it, and it was a bench in honor of Steve Young, who Mary Grace talked about last night, Dharma brother. So um, the practices of death come and go within retreat, obviously. But I'd like to speak about the 32 parts of the body, and Again, coming from this very powerful quote from the Buddha in the Samyutta Nikaya, he says that within this fathom long body, with its thoughts and emotions, lies our world. Its origin and its cessation and its pathway to freedom within this fathom long body. This body is the vehicle that we live inside of in the path. Of awakening. It's not outside of the body but it's in it. There's a funny story about uh, a character in, in um, a book, The Dubliners, by James Joyce. Uh, his name was Mr. Duffy and it was said of him that Mr. Duffy happened to live a short distance away from his body. And so we're gonna try to not be like Mr. Duffy but actually enter into this body. And I'll actually maybe just share a little bit of a story about how I entered into this practice. Um, that I, I was f- actually first introduced to the 32 parts of the body practice in Burma in 1980. He ordained as a monk under Tungpu Lucero and in no time he had me starting to chant these parts and sent me out to some forest cave and go meditate on them. And I, I, I thought I was fascinated with it but I didn't quite <laughs> fully understand it and also we practiced more traditional Vipassana meditation but I, I was kind of fascinated with this list of body parts and eventually I left the monastery and got married and um, I, I, I actually thanked John kabat because he created a whole job for all these Dharma bums that didn't know what to do with their lives I started teaching mindful space stress reduction very grateful to John Otherwise, I don't know what I'd do. And um, within Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, we teach a practice called the body scan, beginning with the left foot, working your way up to the top of your head. So it's a body-oriented practice. And so, you know, I, I felt very comfortable practicing it and working with it. And all these years, I also kept chanting the 32 parts of the body and practicing with it on and off. And it's very funny to say, but I'm just about 60, so I can say it that I worked with that practice with the 32 parts of the body for 26 years and in 2006 I all of a sudden realized wow this is a very powerful practice (laughs) I'm a slow learner 26 years hanging out with it and um, I wish I had a PowerPoint (laughs) just to show you this one picture but it's a it's a picture of some cows from a Gary Larson Farside cartoon, and they're sitting in a pasture, and they're eating grass. This is what cows do. They eat grass. One cow all of a sudden has a major insight, a major epiphany, and starts calling out to the other cows, hey, wait a minute, we're eating grass. We're eating grass. Hey, wait a minute, we're eating grass. So in the same way... After 26 years, wait a minute, we got a body. We got a body. We got a body. It's kind of funny to say that. <clears throat> but that's really how it, it was for me. You know, even though, I mean, I've had body issues go on. I've, I've had to learn to walk. Four different times in my life. I had a a bacterial infection that nearly died in 1996, but somehow I just did not get that we have a body to some degree. And I realized the profoundness of this meditation that took on a dimension I just can't believe. And the thing that I became aware of too is that this practice is really not practiced in the West at all and barely even in the East. It's very typical when monastics get ordained, They, while they shave one's head, they chant these parts, but very few of the monastics practice it. I happen to be very lucky to, to meet Tampulu Seru, who became my teacher for many years, that was really into this practice. I'm actually very grateful for Mary Grace, because um, you know, I brought this up to her and said, you know, could we do this at Spirit Rock? And um, thank you so much for... Making this happen, this is, I don't know, we were talking the other day, like six years or, I don't know. It's been a number of years since we've been offering this here. And I feel that the 32 parts of the practice is a profound practice. Actually, Tom Pellucetto, my teacher, he says this about it. He says, the 32 parts of the body is one of the most eminent of all of the foundations of mindfulness. This meditation is is unlike any other kind of meditation. You will see why in a little bit. It is only brought to light and taught in the times when the Buddhas arise. This is a quote from Saraha, that within my body are all the sacred places of the world. And the most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. The most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. And so I brought on the backboard in the next few days, you're welcome to look at the, the affectionately called the thin man. That's uh, an anatomical chart, and you can actually pull out the different layers so you can see different insides of the body as we go through these parts. If you're not sure what they look like, you'll see them there. Also on that table, I <laughs> will, I, you, some of you might like this, some of you might go, like, oh my god, but I, I'll, I'll give you some pictures of when I had a meniscus knee surgery. You can see the inside of my kneecap and so forth, and then I've had a couple of colonoscopies. If you're interested what the inside of my large intestine looks like, you're welcome to take a look at it, and some other little goodies. Anyways, I'll put it on the back table so you can see. <laughs> My doctor just got real kick out of me. Could I have that picture please? (laughs) But actually he's a meditator, so he actually, he really understood and thought it was really great too. So these 32 parts, there's 20 solids and 12 liquids, but I bet you're wondering what they are. So I'll recite them to you. So there's head here, body here, nails, teeth, skin. Flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, synovic fluid, and urine. Quite a list. So first you might ask, why these parts? And when I consult the commentaries within the tapitaka, within the teachings, the Pali Canon, I really cannot find any reasons why these parts. And practicing this for many years now, actually this practice, when you do it in a very formal way, actually takes 33 weeks or 8 months. And this year I'm going on to my 8th year teaching a class, an 8-month class on these parts. And so my experience, really, this is what informs me, is that these parts, I consider them to be like ambassadors, portals into the body. Because, this, of course, is way more than 32. But these parts are bringing us into the body. For example, my wife took this class a few years ago, and she has diabetes, and the pancreas, as you probably heard, was not mentioned in that list. But as you're working in the abdominal area quite naturally her awareness moved into that area since the pancreas is the seat of where insulin uh, is grown so i consider these parts to be like ambassadors and when we begin to work with them tomorrow you might find as you with one part it may open up the doorway into another part and that will certainly be fine so they're like ambassadors we may also um, wonder why this particular order? This is a very strange order. Why is feces next to brain? Did Buddha have a sense of humor or is there something that he's pointing us to? <laughs> of course, in the digestive system, sometimes it's referred to in neuroscience as the second brain with all of the various nerve endings that are there. Why this order? Again, in consulting with the the Canon, there's... I cannot find any real understanding of why this order but one thing that we can deduce from it right away that there is I believe a very specific method here and when we think about it the first five are the parts of the body when we look at each other that's what we really see besides clothes we see head hair body hair nails teeth and skin and the cosmetic industry knows about this and they have made it into a multi-billion dollar industry and we all know how much fussing we do with our head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, and skin. And at times we're really happy with it, and sometimes we are really sad and ashamed with it. And the cosmetic industry knows this, and they capitalize on it. So it's very interesting that if we begin with these parts that we see, and then of course we begin to unzip the zipper into flesh, which is muscles, sinews is connective tissue, and the bones, the bone marrow the kidneys. But then you go, well, what's the connection between bone marrow and then all of a sudden you're into kidneys? Well, bone marrow is blood formation and kidneys is blood purification. So there's some interesting connections between these. Coming back just for a second to um, the head, hair, body, nails, teeth, skin. One year there was a, a retired um, chief financial officer that had taken my class and she got out her Excel sheet, and she wanted to figure out, well, how much money have I actually spent on head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, and skin for the last 65 years? And so, again, I wish I had a PowerPoint. So here, this is her Excel spreadsheet. And she's got, like, you know, you know, what it all costs for, like, uh, head, hair, like shampoo, conditioners, curling irons, hair dryers, hair ties, haircuts, salon treatments. So that was, like, about 27000 body hair, razors, shaving cream, eyebrow wax was about a thousand bucks. Nails, nail polish, nail files, nail utensils, pedicures, manicures, nail oil, about 14,000. Teeth, toothpaste, dental floss, toothbrushes, electronic toothbrush, whiteners, cleanings, fillings, crowns, about 25 grand. Skin, oh, lotion, moisture, cleanser, makeup, peels, facials, laser work, skin cancer. It's about twenty-five thousand. So altogether, she's, it was close to about almost two hundred thousand dollars. That's probably conservative at this point. But it's amazing when you start fussing with this head, hair, body, here, nails, teeth, skin, and what's here. This is a specific method of practicing this meditation. And it first begins with the verbal. Someone asked the other night, are we going to be doing any chanting? And the answer was yes. And so we're going to be actually chanting these body parts and you you actually now have a a sheet of it in your hands. We will not be chanting tonight, but tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock, so we'll have the first 30 minutes of silence and then we're going to chant the body parts three times forward, three times backwards, three times forward and backwards. If you didn't get a sheet, there's some out on the hall there. But what, what is prescribed, and it's actually kind of a funny phrase, it's called the sevenfold skill in learning. What this means is seven different aspects that we practice to develop this meditation. So the first is to learn it verbally. So there's a, a, the sense of knowing the parts orally, verbally, and that sets the condition to know it then mentally. Then for mentally, we want to penetrate into the part, knowing its color, its shape, its location, the direction. And what it's bordered by. Of course we've also added, because it's very helpful to know, its definition and its function. The 32 parts of the body is an interesting practice in that it can be used both as an insight meditation that can take us to nibbana, to awakening, to freedom, and it also can be used as a concentration practice to develop jhana and absorption, concentration, So it has two different aspects that um, people can practice with. Being that I have so much suffering in my life, I I choose the insight practice to try to alleviate the the suffering part. So the orientation that I like to um, teach the 32 parts is from an insight perspective. And from this insight perspective, I want to just teach it very matter-of-factly. This is the part. So for example, I'm, I'm... not picking on my beloved wife, who I love so much, but I'm going to use an example that, and maybe some of you can relate to this, going to um, get your hair cut and coming back home and not liking it. Is that, has that ever happened? I hate it. I don't like it. So I remind her: head hair, thread-like outgrowths from the skin of mammals, hardened cells protruding from the head, its function is also for thermal regulation and protection from ultraviolet light. She's about to hit me at this point. <laughs> but then she'll laugh, and we'll both laugh, because, you know, look at my head here. I don't even got anything to talk about. So. But so the practice is penetrating into what it really is. Yeah, we have a lot of infatuation, so this practice breaks some of that spell of infatuation. The cosmetic industry will probably not like you practicing this. We do have to keep ourselves clean and use the products that we need to clean, but the sense of, of um, breaking free of this infatuation that actually gets us so caught up in so much loathing and hate and shame of this body that is on the other side. Where do we awaken? We awaken in this body, not outside of the body. There also is, just to say uh, full um, round, that... This practice is also used particularly in the monastic world as a practice to help curb and lessen lust and passion. And so they actually have have used the practice in, and sometimes if you Google 32 parts of the body, you might be shocked to discover some of the language that is used cultivating the loathsome, the repulsive, the disgusting aspects of the body. Again, this has been used for monastics to help with their Very strong sensual desires when they're trying to live a celibate life. For us as householders, I think that many of us have a very difficult time already with our bodies rather than adding on to the loathsome aspects of it. And again, from my sense and understanding, this body is what we awaken into. This is this is a gift. And to treat this body with with loving-kindness and care but also to penetrate into understanding more of its true nature so that we're not caught ourselves in that state of infatuation. Again, how much pain have we experienced looking in that mirror, wanting to look different, wanting to be different? So this practice is very sobering and really helping us to understand the body's true nature. And of course, as we begin to penetrate into this body, these, these body parts begin to break down into the elements so that even further develops insight practice if the, uh, the, the body parts break down into solids, to liquids, to motion, to temperature, beginning to reveal this onerless and permanent nature of things. So the benefits of this practice, and I've already spoke a little bit about is, is seeing through this narrative self, this I, me, and my. When we think of the Buddha experiencing the unconditioned, the unconditioned, one there's a few different meanings for it, but one meaning can be breaking free of this conditioning of self, of this imprisonment of a limited definition. Another benefit is that this practice, again, amasses concentration. It says in the text, you will be intelligent, you will have a good memory, you will develop absorption. Now the benefits that you will conquer boredom and doubt. There's also references in this practice of using this practice for healing meditations. There's a friend of mine that lived at the, that came to the monastery. She didn't live there, but she had lung cancer, terminal lung cancer with under one year to live. And the monks said you need to practice the 32 parts of the body, particularly the section where the lungs are in. And so she began to practice it very faithfully and she began to get a little bit better. At the end of the year she sent her oncologist a little postcard that said, still here, love Barbara. And this went on for six years, sending her oncologist, still here, love Barbara. Fortunately at the end of, um, of a sixth year um, her cancer did come back and she did uh, pass away. But even in her passing, I believe that she died with deep healing in her heart. And I'll just share with you a a poem that she wrote shortly before her death. Shortly before her death, she wrote this poem. She said, it's not the will to live which sustains my life, but the release from fear. I've not outwitted death, but broken free from the stranglehold of fear. At Christmas we celebrate the wonder of birth, at Easter, the miracle of rebirth, what then of death? Without fear, death unfolds like a warm cloak of soft black wool. Death is the abyss from which all life emerges, drawn by the light. Barbara Roberts So, we'll be embarking upon an adventure these next few days with this body. And the orientation that I like us to work with is as we penetrate into these parts to be mindful of what is felt physically and what may be evoked mentally and emotionally. It's said in a very beautiful poem by Martha Elliott that your history is here inside your body. Your body is your storehouse of all of your learnings, and thoughts, and experiences only waiting to be invited in. Your history is here inside your body. Your body is your storehouse. I remember one person in my class was meditating on the head here. And as she penetrated just sitting with her head here and reflecting, feeling into the head here. A memory arose of um, some years ago of her stroking her dying grandmother's hair. Our history is here inside our body. So, as we go into this practice, being mindful of what is arising as we sense and feel into it, and potentially what it may evoke in our hearts. So, I think I'm about done. I want to just read you a spicy poem. And then um, a beautiful one. So, the spicy one is by Mary Oliver. Some of you know Mary Oliver. And this poem is called The Body. And she says Bless the fingers, for they are as darting as fire. Bless the little hairs of the body, for they are softer than grass. Bless the hips, for they are cunning. Beyond all machinery. Bless the mouth, for it is the describer. Bless the tongue, for it is the maker of words. Bless the eyes, for they are the gifts of the angels, for they tell the truth. Bless the shoulders, for they are stre- our strength and our shelter. Bless the thumb, for when it's working, it has a godly grip. Bless the feet for their knuckles and their modesty. And bless the spine for it is the whole story. So this is from Tsong Kapa, a Tibetan teacher. It says, The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty and it is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as a tiny splash of a raindrop. A thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore set your goal. Make use of every day and night. The human body, at peace with itself, is more precious than the rarest of gems. And so we'll just sit for a minute inside our rarest of gem, our body. And so may all embodied beings dwell with peace so thank you and Walking meditation and meeting back at nine o'clock for our last sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit DharmaSeed.org slash donate.